0: Welcome to Discovery and Inspiration, a podcast from the National Humanities Center. I'm Robert Newman, President and Director of the Center, and your host for this episode. Although Cuban novelist Olejo Carpentier, his 1956 masterpiece, El Okolso, translated as The Chase, was suppressed in the United States for over three decades. This work has been cited as a major influence on the writers most closely associated with magical realism throughout Latin America. But Carpentier's influence began, in fact, much earlier in his career, as his deep interest in music led him to collaborate with composers and visual artists to try to imagine a distinctly Cuban ballet tradition that incorporated the country's history and culture in dialogue with innovations taking place in Europe and elsewhere. Our guest today is Professor Lester Tomei, Associate Professor of Dance History and Theory at the Smith College. This year, as a fellow at the center, Lester Tomei has been working on a new book tentatively titled The Avant Garde Imagination: Transatlantic Visions of Ballet, that considers intersections between 20th century ballet modernism and ethnography through the lens of Carpentier's ballet librettos. Welcome, Lester. Thank you, Robert. I am so pleased to be here
1: and have this opportunity to talk and frankly brainstorm some of my ideas for this new project. Let me say also just to start that I am so thankful for the opportunity to do this work uh, through the sponsorship of the National Humanities Center, which has been
0: wonderful. Well, we're delighted to have you as a fellow this year. So, let's begin by Uh, talking to our audience a bit about how you became interested in this topic. So
1: uh, I'm going to be looking in this project at a chapter in the history of ballet, which is fascinating, which is early 20th century modernism and avant-gardism in ballet. Uh, Many of the listeners may be familiar with the mythical company that were uh, Diaghilev Ballet Russe. It was a center for creativity and collaboration. The company was created in 1909, and it existed until 1929. Uh, there was another company, Le Ballet Suédois, or the Swedish Ballet, uh, that existed for a briefer period, 1920 to 1925, but that it was equally innovative. And what distinguished these two ensembles was that they attracted figures such as Stravinsky, Satie, De Defaya, Prokofiev, just to mention some musicians, or to mention some painters, Matisse, Picasso, Braque, Di Chirico, even, uh, even, even writers who were collaborating on librettos for ballets like Cocteau, Claudel, Sendrars, and Pirandello. So this is such a fascinating topic. I am not the first scholar to feel the appeal to write about this period, what is different in my project is that I want to look at the transatlantic dissemination of this phenomenon, as you mentioned through the case of Carpentier. I distinctly remember when I was a college student that I got my hands in a collection of chronicles and reviews that Carpentier had written probably when he was the same age as I, as I was as a reader in his early 20s. and. There was so much power uh, in his writings, his fascination with what was happening in Europe at the time, in a way, matched my captivation with his own reading. So it's fitting now that I uh, return to this topic and building on that enthusiasm that I experienced at the
0: time. So how how are Corpettier's ballet projects different from, say, Giselle, or Balanchine, or uh, Nijinsky?
1: Well, Carpentier is part of a group of writers and composers and visual artists in the Americas that are trying to imagine what a modernist or an avant-garde ballet in an American context can be. And the answer is that they take a nationalist approach, a group of artists who are trying to create national versions of ballet. In the case of Carpentier, he took inspiration in Afro-Cuban culture, but there were other artists, and maybe it's good to, to mention those now because I think what I want to do in this book is to look at Carpentier as a case study for something that is happening across the America. So, for instance, in, in Argentina, you have uh, a collaboration on a ballet based on a Guarani legend, capuara from 1915, and that was undertaken by Ricardo Giraldes, a novelist, and the painter Alfredo González Garaño. Uh, Then you have uh, Brazilian composers, Ator Villalobo, creating these scores that were uh, symphonic works, but that he titled them ballets and that were also inspired in... Uh, Indigenous culture in Brazil. In Mexico, there are attempts to create ballets inspired in uh, the Jarabe Tapiatio, which is one of the national dances in Mexico in 1919. Or Carlos Chavez, the Mexican composer, is creating what he characterized as Aztec ballets, uh, scores for Aztec ballets. And in Peru, you also have an equivalent to that with composer Teodoro Balcarcel, who uh, is working on a similar experiment to create a Quechua choreographic experiment.
0: So talk to us a bit about the development of Afro-Cubidismo that you're studying.
1: Yes. Carpentier, uh, when he's in his early 20s, he wrote three libretti and also created there is correspondence that shows evidence that he was engaged in ambition, even additional ballet projects with Cuban composers. And these uh, words, these libretti, they are among the first uh, examples of what is called Afro-Cubanismo. Um, Afro-Cubanismo was a cultural movement that extended from music to the visual arts, to literature, to also cultural anthropology that uh, reclaimed the afro-cuban cultural heritage as essential to the definition of cuban culture as something that cuban artists and intellectuals had to take pride in until that point uh, the intellectual establishment in cuba for the most part had regarded afro-cuban culture as bad war or as uncultured, and the proposal to create a national art Based on this African legacy of Cuban culture that was not viable before then. But in the 1920s, it becomes viable, it becomes highly desirable. That is in itself a reflection of the interest in African culture that was part of avant gardeism in, in Paris, right? You know, you are familiar probably with the vogue for African culture in the arts, as exemplified by a dancer like Josephine Baker or by Picasso's interest in African culture so this was a uh, this was in dialogue with that it said that this group of cuban painters and writers they had first-hand knowledge of, of afro-cuban culture they were engaged in ethnographic study of afro-cuban music and dance and that's another thing that sets Carpentier's work apart from a world like For instance, you have mentioned earlier, the work of the words of Balanchine and Giselle. Uh, Carpentier at this point is in this early stage of his career and now we know him as a novelist. Back then he was doing journalism, he was writing poetry, he was writing ballet librettes, but he was also doing anthropology and publishing uh, ethnographic articles on Afro-Cuban, religious rituals actually.
0: So one of the things that's particularly important, I think, about your project is that it's a, a transatlantic project. Can you talk a bit about how this work gets disseminated throughout the Americas? That's one of the things that I think I would like
1: to, uh, to bring attention to. I think the work is transatlantic, in, in the transatlantic dimensions are several. First of all, this is a time period when some of the composers and visual artists in the America who become central figures in the development of modernism. On this side of the Atlantic, they are going to Paris, to study in Paris or to other European centers. But then in the case of dance, we also uh, have visits and tours by European dancers who come to the Americas. Pavlova, for instance, she travels to practically every country in Latin America and also extensively throughout the United States. And she was in Cuba in 1915. Uh, so there is a travel of dancers uh, and artists going in, uh, in both directions. What I propose is that that's not the only history to be told about the transatlantic dissemination of ballet. Something that I want to work on and establish with this project is that ballet had become so alluring as a source of creativity and innovation that there was wide coverage of ballet developments in Europe on the media in the, uh, in the Americas. So Carpentier, for instance, was, what he was doing is that he was reading French magazines that arrived to Cuba, French literary journals. And then he was taking his inspiration from that and he actually was reproducing some of that information in the articles that he wrote himself. To give you an example, when uh, Le Valet Rus premiered one of his, uh, his most iconic pieces, uh, Lenon's by Bronislava Nijinska, with a score by Stravinsky, one month after the premiere, Carpentier is already writing about the work for a Cuban publication. So he did that because he had read about the work. So in in literary studies, scholars have established the importance of magazines in the dissemination of modernism. And I want to apply that to what I call uh, the circulation of the ballet imaginaries. Because ballet is something that we do with our bodies. Uh, Our general idea is that you have bodies, unique bodies traveling for the, the concept of ballet and the genre to travel itself. And what I want to propose is that there was uh, a lot of other ways in which information about ballet was circulating at the time, Uh, not just from Europe to the Americas, but also within the Americas. Uh, When Carpentier starts working on these projects, he gives two examples of what he was emulating. And he was emulating uh, the ballets with music by Defaya, in Spain, the three-cornered hat, for instance, Uh, but also he was very aware of what other artists and composers were doing in the Americas in terms of ballet. So he was also uh, in dialogue with that. So in that sense, this study is transatlantic, but also hemispheric. I want to see how these ballet experiments that Carpentier was leading in Cuba Uh, were part of a hemispheric phenomenon, something that was happening in the U.S. all the way from the United States to the Southern Cone.
0: So it also strikes me that it's also an anti-colonial gesture as well, uh, as well as a nationalist uh, affirmation, and the racial makeup of the troops are different from what one, at least in the Americas and in Europe, would normally see in a ballet troop. So, Talk to us a bit about the political dimensions of these ballet projects.
1: So maybe I could try to uh, recreate the final scene of El Milagro de Anakille, the miracle of Anakille, which is uh, a ballet libretto by Carpentier from 1927. So what's happening in that ballet, the premise is that there is... uh, Character, who is a U.S. filmmaker associated with the uh, with Hollywood, and he's traveling through the Cuban countryside in the hopes of finding some exotic material for a movie that he wanted to create. And he happens upon an abakuá ritual, an abakuá initiation ritual, which is, uh, for the most part, a secret ritual that is closed to the public. So, in the final scene of the ballet, uh, the the film director directs his two actors, a man and a woman, to wear these stereotypical and caricature-esque costumes. She's wearing a grass skirt and his male dancer is wearing uh, some sort of leopard print, uh, Tarzan-esque costume. And he asked them to dance in front of his camera with the Afro-Cuban ritual that is taking place in the background. Uh, And this is not fine with these Abacoa performers. So a confrontation ensues. uh, There is a brawl, there is a fight. And in the process of that, uh, the filmmaker smashes the sacred Afro-Cuban ritual. And and this is what the place called a miracle, uh, the Milagro de Anakille, just is a a reference to the medieval miracle place in which saints came to help. Uh, character and that's what happens in this case it's not saints it's two afro-cuban deities they are like gigantic futurist marionettes that materialize on stage and they perform this robotic dance and next thing you know is that they strangle the u.s filmmaker out of nowhere so i think this is uh so ahead of its time the libretto is from 1927 there is already there like a critique of u.s interventionism in cuba this was a period in Cuban history, shortly after the uh, Cuban independence from Spain and the America, uh the Spanish American war in which the uh, US presence in Cuba is pervasive in the economy, in politics, on the cultural front, even military presence. So this is the context in which this ballet is created. It is an indictment of, of imperialism. And at the same time, you know, the the choice of topic, which was to present an Afro-Cuban ritual, which actually carpentier in that this ritual be performed by actual Abacoa dancers who knew the choreography because Carpentier was not a choreographer. So his solution to that is, okay, I have to incorporate into the ballet, the actual dancers. So that in itself was a completely anti-establishment gesture. To put that in context, let me just mention that in 1922 and 1925, the Cuban government has passed bans against the public performance of afro-cuban religions and some uh, afro-cuban dance forms so simply putting that on stage was going to be highly confrontational and you know there is also the politics of finding a national voice in the americas where we have a legacy of cultural colonialism this gesture of absorbing ballet had to be done critically had to be done in a way that affirmed a cuban national identity rather than being derivative of european avant-gardism you know just the last thing that i would mention just in that scene you also have a critique of the stereotype of the savage that were becoming ever present at that moment because of the popularization of cinema this is what the ballet is doing it's like uh it's documenting the process through which an exotic hollywood movie is being produced and how these characters are represented as savages and the ballet runs against that, actually.
0: So if we fast forward to, say, the uh, post-revolutionary period, the Castro regime, what happens? Do we have any changes in, in how these ballets are performed? These ballets that Carpentier created at the time, these
1: libretti that he created at the time, actually, they were not realized because there were no professional ballet companies in Cuba in the 1920s or any institutional form of support or infrastructure that made it possible to make ballets in cuba so they were utopian gestures in a sense and spoke to his high level of enthusiasm with ballet that he put all this energy in creating these librettos and collaborating with painters and composers when there were no choreographers in cuba who could have done that so two of his ballets La Rebambaramba, uh, which means like it's something that makes a lot of noise, the, like a carnival, a like hulibalu of sorts, and the miracle of Anakije, uh, they are produced in the early years of the revolution. The uh, famous Cuban choreographer, Ramiro Guerra, who was a modern dance choreographer and also an anthropologist, uh, he created two staging of these words, one in 1960 and the other one in 1961. And uh, they were infused with political symbolism because the same idea that had been relevant in the 1920s continued to be relevant, but in a different context in the early years of the revolution. One and think the most obvious is the critique of American interventionism. We know that uh, the Cuban revolution defined itself Against the presence of the uh, and the power of the US in Latin America. It was like a beacon of sovereignty in those years. Uh, the American poet uh, Calvert Casey, which was in Cuba at the time of the premiere, actually interpreted uh, the production of the Milagro de Anaquille in those terms and as, as an anti imperialist gesture. Uh, but also the uh, engagement with Afro Cuban culture that had defined Afro Cubanismo. It continues with the revolution under a new guise. A few weeks after taking power, uh, the revolutionary government led by by Fidel Castro declared that eliminating racism in Cuba was going to be one of the priorities of the revolution. There were a number of initiatives to do that and the cultural front was very important. And these were years in which There was great visibility for Afro-Cuban culture and a great development for the anthropology of Afro-Cuban culture too. So when they were performed in 1960 and 1961, these two ballets spoke to that as well. What
0: kept these ballet projects by Alejo Carpentier's from reaching completion? And in your study of these projects, what have you learned about studying something that is unfinished? What does that reveal? As I was
1: saying, at the time uh, when Carpentier wrote these libretos, there was no infrastructure, there were no professional dancers or choreographers in Cuba. Carpentier tried to work around those limitations creatively. He tries to work with a Cuban dramaturg. Excore score is actually created for the ballets, and also he, uh designs are made by uh, a Cuban painter. But this project did not move forward in Cuba. So what he did, actually, is that he approached de in 1928. He uh, leaves Cuba after having been in prison for opposing the regime of Machado and uh, um, goes into exile in Paris. And he became part of the surrealist circle in in Paris, and he had access to Diaghilev. And according to his correspondence, Diaghilev was quite interested in producing the ballet or discussing the idea further at the very least. Uh, But that did not happen because Diaghilev died in 1929. So the ballets remain dormant. I think regardless of that, they are so valuable. It raises a question about what is a finished. Product in dance because the librettos were finished and Carpentier recognized them as so because he published the libretos. The uh, they are part of his complete works. The scores were created by the Cuban composer Amadeo Roldan and they were performed uh, in concert halls in Cuba and outside Cuba as well, as early as the in the 1930s. Uh, but the ballet itself was not created. I think this is a trend. Uh, As I was saying, Carpentier's work is just one example of among various um, artists and composers in Latin America that at the time they are trying to create ballets and many of these works, I hesitate to use the word fail, but they did not move forward. Uh, Nevertheless, it's so important to look at these works and to When when we talk about history, normally we think of history as the history of events, but we know that history is also a history of ideas. So it is important to study what imagination made possible. And even even in the context of avant-gardeism, the imagination was such a central category because anything imaginable seemed possible. Artists were breaking barriers. Um, Many of the things that they imagined, they were not realizable, maybe because of logistic concerns, or maybe because there was so much creativity at the time that they could not produce everything that they envisioned. But these ideas need to be revisited. I think when we talk about modernism and the avant-garde, we uh, move between two poles. On the one side, there are the finished works. There are many of those. And on the other end, we also have like, dozens of manifestos. The futurist manifesto, the surrealist manifesto. Uh, So these manifestos are recognized as very important. These are like abstract embodiments of the aspirations of uh, avant-garde artists. And I think that these unfinished works of which there were many as well, they fall in between and that they deserve to be
0: examined more closely by historians. What a wonderful project. Thank you very much, Lester Tomei, and thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for tuning in. I'm Robert Newman. Please join us again for the next episode of Discovery and Inspiration from the National Humanities Center.